Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning and ask that your Spirit would be among us to turn our ears and our hearts to the Word that is to be preached to us, that you would remove distractions and focus our minds on what we are to hear this morning. We ask that you would be with our pastor as he preaches boldly the words that you have prepared for him to say, that you have worked through him, that we may hear not his voice, but yours. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You turn, me, turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel. We're continuing on in our study in chapter 3. And as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark, what we've noted over and over and over again from the very first verse is Mark's zeal, his commitment to communicate to us, to demonstrate to us, to show us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is no mere rabbi, he is no mere teacher, he is, he is no mere healer or miracle worker, but he is nothing less than the eternal Son of God. So that's been a constant theme, and we're going to see that theme continue in our text today. I'll be reading here in a moment from verses 13 to 19 in Mark chapter 3. But there is another theme that begins to be woven in through these early chapters of the book of Mark. And it's a theme of a new exodus. It's a theme of a new exodus. And, and you, you are likely familiar with the story with the people, uh, God's people of old. Abraham was given a promise by God that through his seed, one day, a deliverer would come. That promise was restated to Isaac not to Ishmael, and then to Isaac's son Jacob, not Esau. And as we've been working through the doctrine of God's decree in our Sunday school hour, we're working look today at the doctrine of election, where God says before they were even born, before they could do anything good or bad, I chose Jacob and not Esau. I loved Jacob and hated Esau before they were even born. And through this Jacob, God brought forth 12 sons who would become 12 tribes of Israel. After they had gone into the crucible of Egypt for 400 years, God would lead them out by his own mighty hand and outstretched arm under the mediatorial work of Moses. And of course we see that as they come out of the wilderness, they wander for 40 years and then God finally brings them into the promised land. But at the very beginning of their wilderness time, we have a dramatic scene where Moses is called up the mountain. There he meets with God, and from there he speaks to his people. With that picture in your mind, let's read the text. The title of today's sermon is From a Multitude to the Twelve. We looked last week at the crushing crowd and all the implications that were taking place there. The, the, the one-two punch of the conspiracy between the, the rulers of the Jews and the Herodians. And then this crushing crowd that threatened perhaps his very life as they seek to press in upon him. 
Well, then out of that great multitude, Jesus has called a number of true disciples. And then out of that group of true disciples, we're going to see he calls 12. The title of the sermon is From a Multitude to the Twelve. Let's hear the text. Again, have that, that picture in your mind of the Exodus and the Lord speaking to his people through Moses on the mountain. Verse 13, we read this. This is the word of God. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. I want to outline the text under three headings. We've been looking at the authority of Christ, the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. Well, it should be no surprise. We're going to see that theme strongly again here in our text. That'll be my first heading, is the the authority of Jesus to call apostles. The authority of our Lord to call apostles in the first place. And then secondly, having called the apostles, what is their role? What's the function of the apostles? And thirdly, what are their qualifications? What is a prerequisite in order to become an apostle? So, authority, role, and qualification. Let's consider the first, the first one first. Uh, let's look at divine authority embodied in the Lord Jesus in order to call these apostles. Again, notice the setting. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Jesus went up the mountain. Now, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, mountains were known as places of divine revelation, as places in which God's divine authority is displayed and manifested. I mean, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. You ever thought about that, the Garden of Eden being a mountain? How do we know it's a mountain? Because four rivers flowed from it. It was all downhill from Eden. Eden was a high place in which God himself dwelt with his people. But of course, the most vivid example of this is Sinai. But if you look through the, the, the book of Exodus, in fact, I did a word study, I didn't count them up, I did a word study this week looking at just the book of Exodus alone, and that phrase, mountain of God, shows up over and over and over and over again. It's significant. It's especially prominent there. But in Isaiah chapter 2, we have another example of this. So, And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So Jesus deliberately, this is not an accident, Jesus intentionally chooses a mountain as the place of his calling of the apostles calling of the 12. So the setting is important. 
And the setting tells us something, gives us a clue about his authority with respect to calling these apostles. But there's a second thing we notice here. We see in in our Lord Jesus on this mountain all three of his offices. Our Lord Jesus is our mediator in three offices, as prophet, as priest, and as king. And we see all three here. Luke, in, in Luke's gospel, we have a very important insight about what goes on here. In Luke chapter 6, Luke tells us that something significant happens immediately prior, the night immediately prior to the calling of the apostles. Listen to this in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Here we see the priestly role of Christ. He's praying for his people. He's praying for all of his disciples. He's praying for all of his people, and he's particularly praying for those whom he would choose even before he chose them. We see the priestly function of Christ. But we also see his prophetical ministry as he goes up to the mountain and he begins to teach and to declare what is the will of God. Well, that's his prophetic office. He declares the word of God, the will of God, just as the prophets of old had done with one key difference. He's not speaking secondhand. He's speaking as God in the office of the great prophet. But we also see his kingly role. Because what does he do on this mountain? He commands, he declares, he summons, he calls. He went up the mountain, and look what he's, notice the phrasing is, is, is important. He goes up on the mountain, he called to him those whom he desired. As every king would do, the king has the authority to summon one, and that one he summons is under obligation to come and obey and follow. So we see Christ in all three of his offices as prophet, priest, and king, demonstrating to us he is, in fact, the Son of God. But there's more even than that. We see his divine authority not only because of the setting on the mountain, but not only because we see his threefold offices, but also because we see his creative work. We see creative work. Now, what, what do I mean by that? The word that Mark chooses here in verse 14 and he appointed 12. This is more than just a choosing. This is more than just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. you come with me. The word is used most often in the New Testament to describe creative activity. In other words, he created apostles. He made apostles. He didn't just simply name them to an office that already existed. He creates them. Jesus is creating a new office, and he has the divine authority to do this. And this is because he's calling a new congregation, a new Israel. And again, we saw that Jacob had 12 sons who would represent 12 tribes. And Jesus now is appointing a particular group. In fact, Mark calls them the 12 doesn't just say it's a 12 or some 12, it's the 12. There's a definite article. 
He appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, and then Mark names them. It's a pivotal moment in the earthly ministry of the Lord that has a continuing benefit up to the very present hour for his church. You know, think about this. Kings and popes, rich and powerful men, have risen and fallen, and most of them are utterly forgotten in history. But these 12 obscure men are memorialized forever. Why? Because Christ created them as the 12. And there's nothing significant about their persons. I mean, we know a little bit about only a few of the apostles. I mean, we know something about Peter, James, John, Matthew. In fact, seven of the names that Mark lists here won't come up again at all in the rest of his gospel. The men themselves, the individuals, were not the point, but rather the corporate nature of them. In fact, this is, R.T. France makes the comment, he says, the number was significant enough in itself to withstand any uncertainty as to just who constituted the group and to necessitate the replacement of a lost member. That's in Acts chapter 1. We'll get there in a few moments. Indeed, several of the 12 are quite unknown in the New Testament except as names on the list. Their number and their corporate identity were more important to tradition than any individual profile. In other words, it's their office that's of key importance. It is the fact that Jesus has, in a sense, spoken them into existence. He created the office of apostle. He appointed them to this role, and he named them as such. Now, Matthew and, and Luke both make it very explicit to us that there's a connection that it's 12. There's a historical identity that's intentional. In Matthew chapter 19, for example, Peter says, see, he says to the Lord, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So I'm not making up a connection here. I'm not looking and say, oh, 12 and 12, those must be connected. No, the, the scriptures explicitly tell us there's a connection here. The fact that he appointed 12 was decisive. It was important because this is, the, this is bringing out this theme of the new Exodus. He is establishing his new congregation, the new Israel. But there's another way in which I think we see the authority of Christ here, the authority of the Son of God, and it's the very nature of Jesus' calling of the apostles. It's the nature of the call itself. He goes up on the mountain and he calls them, and it says he called those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, I mentioned his prophetical office, but all the other prophets throughout history they summoned God's people to follow who? Yahweh. To return to God. Follow God. Obey God's word. Je what does Jesus say? Follow me. Obey me. Submit to me. Why? Because he's the son of God. Because he has that authority to do that. And, and he calls according to his 
own decree, according to his own eternal election, according to his own divine eternal appointment, these particular men. It was not an accident that of all the disciples that were gathered there that day, that he appointed these particular twelve. And even though seven of the names don't even appear again in the gospel record, at least in Mark's gospel, we still know that every last one of these was appointed by divine decree according to God's providential rule. And Jesus said, I have the authority to carry that out because it was my decree. He went up the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they answered to the call. This is a divine prerogative. The Son of God alone has this authority. And unlike the Old Testament prophets who always called people to God, Jesus has come to me. Follow me. Jesus calls the apostles to himself because he is the Son of God. Now what do we do with that? How do we think about this? Because the reality is, none of us are apostles. None of us will ever be apostles. So is this simply a matter of historic record? We look at that and say, well, that's, that's helpful. I'll file that away under the file for A for apostles. Now I've got good information, good accurate information from the Scriptures, and I can file that away, but it's only information. Well, no, every word of God is profitable for our instruction, for our correction, for our reproof, for our training in righteousness. And here we must recognize also the authority of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Do you? Not in a theoretical sense, but in an actual, practical, everyday sense, do you recognize the divine authority of Jesus as the Son of God? Do you recognize his authority to call you? Now again, he's not calling you to apostleship. He's not calling me to apostleship. None of us are apostles. In fact, only a minority of regenerate men are even called to be pastors. Many men and women are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has that authority to call them, to say, you, follow me, submit to me, obey me, walk after my steps, think after my thoughts, speak after my words. Can you sit here, as you sit here today, can you say, Yes, the Lord has called me, and I have followed him. I followed him, first of all, in believing the gospel of his kingdom. I've, I've, I've believed, first of all, the call to say, walk after me in faith. Believe that I am the one, the redeemer, the anointed one that the scriptures foretold. Follow me in believing that God has raised me from the dead, just as the Scriptures foretold, making my sacrifice for the sins of all my people effective, assuring that the, that the sacrifice was valid and accepted by God. Will you believe that? Have you, have you submitted to that divine authority? Have you responded to that call? Because if you're here today, you're hearing the outward call. But the call must be registered by more than just your, your auditory system. It's got it's to pass deeper than your ears. Your heart must respond in faith. 
and the obedience of repentance. And for all those in Christ, He calls us to love and obedience of God through Himself. If you are in Christ, He calls you to love and obedience to God through Himself. And and we can think about that in, in sort of this abstract sense. That yes, I believe the gospel. Yes, I've submitted myself to the commands of Christ. But where it gets difficult for most of us is when He calls us to suffer. When He calls us to hardship. When He calls us to difficulty. When, when, he, when he calls us to do that which makes us uncomfortable. Do we recognize His divine authority to do that? Do we recognize His divine wisdom in exercising that call? When He looks at you and says, you, my brother, you, my sister, are to follow me through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you submit to that? Or do you fight against it at every point? The Apostle Paul declares, and this was something that was not an immediate product of his justification. Just because he was born again doesn't mean that he automatically understood all of this. He testifies in his letter to the Philippians that I have learned how to be content in every circumstance. He said, I've had plenty to eat and I've been hungry. I've been warm and well-fed and I've been naked and hungry. I've been shipwrecked, I've been beaten with rods. And all those things, I've learned to be content. I've learned to submit myself to the sovereign rule of my Savior because He has that authority as my prophet, priest, and king to call me to that. And I trust His goodness, I trust His wisdom, I trust His graciousness. So we witness here Jesus' divine authority to call apostles to Himself But to what end? Why does he call them? For what purpose? What role did our triune God have for the twelve? And I think we see this also in the text. So let's look again at the text itself. We're told that he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, and then we see a purpose clause, so that. So that, notice what follows, they might be with him so that he might send them out. So that he might send them out specifically to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is what the text tells us is the very purpose of their apostleship. Now let's work through this. The first one is to accompany Christ. He says he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. We can read over that too quickly and underestimate the, the real weight of that. Jesus called 12 men to walk side by side with him, to eat with him, to sleep next to him, to endure hardship with him, to laugh and rejoice together, to eat together, to to see him confront those who would abuse their authority and lord it over men, to see his pity and compassion as he healed the sick and the lame and the blind, 
to see his wisdom as he parried the thrusts of the Jews and the rulers of Israel. There were many witnesses to Christ's words and works, but Jesus here appoints a particular group to serve him as his formal and official witnesses. In Acts chapter 1, on the occasion of, here's the resurrected Christ, moments before he's raised up into glory into the clouds. The apostles are asking him, they're they're gathered there because he had commanded them to gather there, and they're asking him, is this the time you're going to restore the the kingdom to, to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. Time's or seasons. But look what he says to them. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. The very last words that Jesus said to his people before he ascended into heaven is, You will be my witnesses. And he's speaking to the 12. Now, at that point, there were only 11. We'll get there in a moment. But he's speaking to a particular group. They had a particular function that has not been replicated, that has not been repeated by way of office for the rest of church history. So he says, the first purpose of this apostleship is so that you might be with me. You will be witnesses to my life, to my ministry, to my words, to my work, and especially, especially you will be witnesses to my resurrection. But something else, he says, so that he might send them out to preach. You know, it's interesting, up to this point, we're only in the third chapter, halfway through the third chapter in Mark, but up to this point, The only one who's taught was one, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and Jesus. No one else has been sent out to teach. No one else has been sent out to speak with godly authority. Jesus says, I'm calling you. I'm creating this office and appointing you to it, naming you apostles, so that when you go, when I send you, you will speak my words. You will declare my thoughts. You will institute my instructions in my church. I mean, he he is saying to them, you will be given authority to speak for God. It's an awesome thing to think about, isn't it? that they were going to be authorized and sent out to speak for God, not to speak only about God, not only to repeat what God had already said, but to speak for God, to speak on his behalf. And again, up to this point, only Jesus has preached, only Jesus has healed, only Jesus has cast out demons. But he says, I'm going to give you that authority. The time would come when Jesus would send them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He will send them out to preach repentance toward God in his name. In John chapter 15, Jesus reminds his disciples, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. 
and anointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He's speaking to the 12. And then after his departure, Jesus says he's going to pour out his spirit upon his upon the 12. So that they would then be able to proclaim his resurrected glory and would be able to proclaim salvation in his name alone, would be able to proclaim fully and faithfully and accurately his kingdom. In John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, this is, this is what our Lord says. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I do go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus, again, speaking to the 12, says, you will have this divine agency. You will have the Holy Spirit poured out upon you to lead you into all truth. Now, what's the fruit of that leading into all truth? We hold it in our hands, saints. We have a closed, finished canon of Scripture in which God has revealed to himself perfectly, infallibly, sufficiently all that we need to know for life and godliness. Jesus says, this is my authority. This is the apostolic commission. I want you to be my eyewitnesses, and I want you to go and preach. And thirdly, a third aspect of the role of the apostle, the function of the apostleship, is to execute Christ's prophetic, priestly, and kingly authority as a foundation in his church. I, I toyed with naming the sermon a 12-peered foundation because that's exactly what's happening here. He appoints the 12 not only to be eyewitnesses, not only to be teachers, but to be the foundation of a temple not made with human hands. To be the spiritual place of God's dwelling. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Turn back, turn forward to the the book of Acts. Notice how the book of Acts begins. Now, this is basically Luke's gospel part 2. The the books of Acts and Luke are are volume 1 and volume 2. Same human author. And, And so Luke tells us here at the beginning of the book of Acts, in the first book, O Theophilus, he's talking about his gospel. 
in that first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Many commentators point out, I think rightly so, that when when Luke declares here in the book of Acts that in the first book, O Theophilus, this eminent man who was the the recipient of of the gospel written by Luke, he said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so we could say the book of Acts is what? What the Lord Jesus continued to do and preach. But by what means did Jesus do it? Did he come back in his resurrected glory and then go and and continue in his earthly ministry? No, he didn't. But what did he do? How is it that he taught? How is it that he continued to preach? How is it that he continued to declare the kingdom through his apostles, through those whom he had appointed? Notice something in Ephesians chapter 2. You can turn there if you wish, but I'll just read it to you. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17, notice what Paul says. He's he's working through the, the, the conundrum of Jew and Gentile. And he's making the argument there's no more, no longer is there two separate distinct people. There's one people of God, Jew and Gentile, who had been forever enemies of one another, ethnically, culturally, spiritually. Now he's created one new man out of the two. The wall of separation has been torn down, and now Jew and Gentile are one people of God in Christ. Now listen to what Paul says, though. How, did this, how was this accomplished? Ephesians 2, verse 17, And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, saints, this is a profound passage. It's rich and it's deep. But notice a couple of things here. First of all, the Apostle Paul says, when Jesus came and preached to you, Now, in your Bible history, when is it that Jesus went to Ephesus and preached? We see him in Capernaum and the region of Galilee and into Jerusalem, but the Scriptures never record that he went all the way into the Gentile land of Ephesus. How is it that Paul said Jesus preached there? He preached through the instrument of the apostles. Because here, Jesus had appointed the apostles. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my mouth and feet to go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world bearing witness of these things. And that's precisely what happened in Ephesus through the apostle Paul and others. The apostolic ministry was the very voice of Christ. 
But there's something else here. Paul says that you are no longer strangers and aliens, meaning you, Jews and Gentiles, are no longer divided. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice what he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In the wisdom of God, and by the authority of Jesus, the Son of God, these apostles were called, these 12 ordinary, obscure men were called to be the very foundation, along with the Old Testament prophets, of the church of Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins to to build, pun intended, build this metaphor of a temple, a glorious, holy, grand temple made with what Peter calls living stones, which are you and me. All those who have professed faith in Christ and be united to him by faith are being built up into the very dwelling place of God. Now he's borrowing from the Old Testament imagery. You remember when when Solomon built the temple, this great monument, and, and Solomon prayed. And the whole ground shook, and the glory of God filled that temple. Well, now the apostles using that same imagery, but saying something far more more profound, something far more significant is taking place. Through the apostolic ministry, Christ is being preached, and those who believe that gospel of the kingdom are being built together into the very dwelling place of God. Christ himself is the cornerstone, meaning he's the the plumb line. He's the measurement of straight and true for this foundation. The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And on top of that foundation is the entire spiritual edifice of the church. In which we, brothers and sisters, are being built up into the very dwelling place of God Most High. That is awesome, isn't it? We overuse that word, but this is truly awesome, what God is doing. In him, Paul says, in Christ, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see the role of the apostles here is to be eyewitnesses, to preach the kingdom, to be the very foundation of the church Because as Jesus said, we read this just a few moments ago in John 16. He said, if I don't go away, the Spirit will not come, the Comforter will not come, the Helper will not come. And there's things that I need to tell you that you can't even bear right now. But He will guide you into all truth. Things that need to be written down, things that needed to be preached for the sake of Christ's church that had not yet been revealed. And it was the ministry of the apostleship by which that happened. So we see the authority of the Son of God to call these apostles. We see the role, the function in the New Testament, in the wisdom of God, of the apostles. But there are hints here in the text and that we need to expand upon through other places in Scripture about the qualifications of these apostles. And... I started to leave this out because it's not dealt with extensively here by Mark, and I've I've tried to be faithful to preach the text in front of me. 
But the more I thought about it and prayed about it, I think it's, no, it's really necessary because there are a number of errors that continue to this very day with respect to apostleship. Uh, we see this in multiple uh, sectors under the name of Christianity in which these are in error. I think the most prominent of all is Rome. Rome has this, this holds this error and holds it grievously and dangerously. See, Rome holds to a doctrine of apostolic succession. The idea that Peter was the first pope and that through the line of Peter, there, there have been apostles in every age and that the current pope is not just a pastor, he's not just a teacher, but he's an apostle. Now, if we think carefully about the implications of that, think about what we just what I just declared to you with respect to the role of the apostles, to be eyewitnesses of Christ. To be his authoritative expression of his word. To speak his words for him. To think his thoughts after him. And to declare the, the, his mind to men. And to be the foundation of the church. I'm unwilling to grant that authority to the papacy. Because the scriptures do not grant that authority to the papacy. It's a dangerous error. There is no apostolic accession. There is no modern contemporary prophet. And essentially what Rome is arguing is they have essentially an ongoing prophecy and apostolic authority in the person of the pope. We need to reject that. We need to reject it strongly. But there's another sector, or another um, flavor, under the banner of Christianity in which this error springs up, and it's in the modern charismatic movement. Where many in the modern charismatic movement have taken to themselves the title of apostle. They've taken themselves the title of apostle. And they just presume. Seems like a good title. Uh, there's, I'm not satisfied with the title of pastor, or elder, or even bishop. I want something more than that. What the title of apostle? Well, how do we evaluate these kinds of claims? Because both of those are wrong. Both Rome and the modern charismatic movement are, are wrong. There are no modern apostles. None. Nor has there been any apostle since the death of the very last apostle, since the death of the last of the twelve, which is probably John. So from John's death until this very moment, there has not been one other apostle, ever. And there won't be. But that means we need a clear understanding from the Scriptures about the qualifications for apostles. And I'm not going to belabor the point. That it's pretty clear from the text. Number one, what's the first qualification? They were men. They were men. Um, you, you will hear, especially in charismatic circles, um, trying to twist a passage out of Romans uh, to, to invent a female apostle that was never there. The apostles were men. They were ordinary men. There was nothing special about their persons. What was special was their divine call and their divine appointment. But we notice in the list here, all of them, 12 out of 12, are men. Now there's 11 faithful men and one devil, but they were all men. 
second, the second qualification is we can expand upon this, what, it, what Jesus means for them to be with him. And how did the apostles, how did those who were actually there, who walked with Jesus, who prayed with Jesus, who ate with Jesus, who heard him teach, who watched him heal, how did they understand his definition of with me? We can turn back to the book of Acts again. You turn to Acts chapter 1 once again. We're going to begin in verse 15. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. In those days, well, this is the days immediately following the ascension of our Lord Jesus. They were meeting together to pray. They were all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now, the company of persons was in all about 120. So here we have, again, the larger group within which the 12, or 11 of the 12, now abided. And Peter stands as his brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. I mean, you got to love Peter. Here is a Peter who's now humbled. We, we saw him throughout the Gospels speak like we often speak, with a foot firmly placed down his throat, and he would speak impetuously. He would speak presumptuously. He would speak, you know, rashly. And here, Peter stands up and says, Brothers, I think we need to address the elephant in the room. And he does so based on the authority of the Scriptures. We see now a humble leader. And Peter says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Jesus, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. I'm going to stop. This is, just as an aside, this is not in my notes. But many of you, and I've heard some of your stories, have experienced significant betrayal by one close to you, one you thought you knew well. The text doesn't tell us, but we can use our sanctified imagination to think about what was going on in the minds of the 12 and the 120, having witnessed the betrayal of Judas. You see, we, we know the, the end of the story from the beginning, so we know even as we're reading through the gospel accounts that Judas would, was going to be the betrayer. But they didn't know that. They didn't know until it happened. And, and put yourself in their place. The, the, the depth of that betrayal, the sting, the open wound that, that was still very much sore here. And, and it's in that context that Peter stands up and says, Brothers, listen to me. This had to happen. I know we're all hurting here. We don't know what to do. Our, our Lord said to go and wait. So that's what we're doing. But he, pointed, he appointed 12 for a reason. And now there's only 11. Brothers, listen to me. This had to happen. This was all according to God's word. This all happened according to God's divine decree. In fact, 
Our Lord himself told us this would happen. So verse 17, he says, He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. He's quoting from the scriptures. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field in, was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it was written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So how did the apostles understand Jesus' statement to his apostles, I will call you to be with me? Well, it's very clear, isn't it? To be with Jesus meant from the baptism of John to be present with him all the way up through the betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, even up to the point of his being caught up into the clouds into glory. So to be with him required there to be someone who knew Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. There was one and only one exception to this rule ever. It was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not with Jesus as a disciple from the baptism of John. We'll see in a moment, Paul does meet the other qualifications. But Paul's the only exception ever to this rule. So someone says to you, the Pope has decreed thus and so, as the vicar of Christ, as his earthly representative. How do you answer that? There is no apostle. Was the Pope there when John baptized Jesus? Was the Pope there when they lowered the paralytic through the roof? Was he there when he healed the leper? When he was there, when he went to hand-to-hand combat almost with the Pharisees? Was he there when he healed the man's withered hand in the synagogue that day and he rebuked the Pharisees and the hardness of their hearts? Was he there for that? I didn't think so. He's not an apostle. When the charismatic says, I'm an apostle, I get words from the Lord. I have authority from Christ to lead his church and establish his church and to do this and that. He said, were you there? Were you a witness to these things? If so, if not, put your hand over your mouth and repent. Repent for misrepresenting God. You are breaking the third commandment. You are taking the name of Yahweh in vain by saying he has spoken when he has not spoken. It's a very serious issue. Thirdly, what are the qualifications? Required that they actually had become themselves believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Judas disqualified himself, didn't he? The other 11 had their issues. They had their moments of weak faith, certainly. But they proved genuine in their faith. 
So they must be men. They must, be, had, they must have been with Jesus from the beginning, and they must be believers themselves. They must be converted. But finally, they must be called immediately by the Lord Jesus himself. They must be called immediately by the Lord Jesus himself. And immediately doesn't mean quickly. It means directly, without, inter, inter, without any intermediary. The twelve were called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may ask, well, what about Matthias? We just read about him in Acts chapter 1. If we continue on in verse 23 of Acts chapter 1, and they put forward two. So there were two men among the 120. There were two men who met the qualifications, who were converted, who were men, who had been with Jesus from the beginning. There were two, and they put forward two of them. We're, we're, we have their names. Justice, or Joseph called Barabbas, and also, who also was called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here was the direct call. The calling was not by means of the lot. That was not a, that was not a mediated calling. He was called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. The lot was merely the means of the other apostles knowing who Jesus had called. So again, someone says, I know of a modern apostle. Oh, really? Were they eyewitnesses? Were they there from the beginning? Were they called directly by the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, I didn't think so. Repent. These are not apostles. Now we see that the apostle Paul he was the exception to the rule in terms of being with Jesus from the beginning, but he was not an exception to the rule of being called immediately by the Lord Jesus Christ. We know Paul's testimony. He, was, he had letters, arrest warrants, from the Sanhedrin. He was on his way on the road to Damascus. And it was at that very place that the Lord Jesus appeared to him personally. The resurrected Lord appeared to Paul and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you continue to kick against the goats? And it was there that the Lord Jesus, in his resurrected glory, called Paul to apostleship. And Paul would later testify that I, I'm an apostle untimely born. Paul recognized, I don't fit the pattern, but grace abounded to me because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. So the text before us today, brothers and sisters, is, is significant. It is not just a, a historical footnote. It's not just a, a matter of New Testament trivia. It is a pivotal event in the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in which he displays his divine authority as the Son of God to create an office, to call apostles to himself. It is it's significant because... It's here that we see 
the beginning of the role of apostles being declared by our Lord Jesus to be eyewitnesses, to be with him, to declare the foundational aspects of the church of Jesus Christ. And here we also see the beginning hints that will be fleshed out later on of the qualification of these apostles. Um, It's important for us to understand and know the Word of God in these things so that we can refute those who contradict it, either by their life or by their teaching. May the Lord give us help and may the Lord give us mercy through His Spirit uh, to hear and believe these things ourselves. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, our God, we are we're so thankful that you have declared these things to us. Lord, will you be gracious to send your spirit to us, not only to believe this word that we have heard, but also seek to follow the commands of our Savior, who is the Son of God, to recognize his authority over us, to recognize his absolute dominion to rule over us as he pleases to summon us to that which he knows is good for us to summon us to that which he knows is pleasing to you would give us hearts to believe this ears to hear and faith to persevere we ask this for christ's namesake amen